I was in a bit of a frenzy on Thursday, given Thanksgiving, and my responsibility was to make the turkey. So as you know, it's a big responsibility and a bit of a stressful one. But thankfully, I have a wonderful thing called technology on my side. I have an automatic pellet grill, so yes, I cheat and allow that temperature to remain at the temperature. Um, for those who you know, you know. But also have uh, Bluetooth thermometers, two of them exact, so I know exactly what the temperature is. So I don't have to periodically you know, jab the turkey over and over and over to figure out, all right, is the turkey ready or not? Well, thankfully, the time came, the temperature is correct, and with my, the excitement, my wife and I, we opened the smoker, it looks beautiful, it tastes wonderful, it's a little salty, but that's my fault, but overall, it's still a really juicy tasting bird. The frenzy didn't come with the first bird, it actually came with the second bird, because I got this bird last second, we found out we have more people coming uh, to Thanksgiving, and we need more meat, because we're Americans. And so with that, uh, the first bird is perfect. And so I take my other meat thermometer that's not Bluetooth. I take the other bird assuming, which is bad on my part, that it would be ready to be served. Right now, the, uh, the fact was I was on time. You know, it's been spending hours working on this turkey, and everything's working out to perfection. Where we, we're supposed to be at the house at three, everything's working out. The bird is fully cooked, it tastes delicious. Um, and I take, take the temperature of the second bird, and my heart sank because it still has about 20 more degrees to go. And I'm like, I have no idea when that's supposed to happen because if I leave now, I'm on time. If I wait any longer, I'm late. So the uncertainty of when this bird is supposed to be done, I had no idea. Then all of a sudden, my smoker went to like error on the bottom, so it started to decrease in temperature. So I'm like, I don't know what to do now. I guess I have an oven I can use. So I'm frantically turning it on, wondering how long will it take to heat the oven to 400 so that my bird can get to FDA-approved 165 degrees in the white meat. You're welcome, by the way. And so I was in a frenzy. I became, I was, I was all of a sudden exhausted, even though I was great. I'm like, oh, now I'm tired all of a sudden because now I have more work to do. I was frustrated because something's not working. But also, I was anxious, not knowing when I can feed my friends. You know, they're waiting on me. It's supposed to be 3 o'clock. It's start to creeping on 3.30, getting closer to 4. I have no idea when this bird is supposed to be done. And so I was in a frenzy. The reason why is because I was uncertain. And for us Christians, the danger is, is that, we'll be that we'll be uncertain about something that's actually very certain. And we'll get into a frenzy that we don't need to be in because the work to be done is certain and it'll be certainly finished. He typed the feedback's pretty bad. If you can adjust that, if you don't mind. If there's a frenzy because the work is done, and it's not done by our own power, it's done through the power of God. And that is the text we are going to study this morning. As Pastor Hayden read it, let's turn to, our, turn to our Bibles in Romans chapter 8. As we scroll down to verse 28, I want to provide a little bit of context. Because here's the thing, if we forget what the truth is being taught here, we're going to forget that God is the center of our lives. And that the work is done and going to be done 
And instead of finding hope and comfort and peace, we will just sit in uncertainty, which will lead to even more anxiety, which will lead to even more frustration and more exhaustion as we try to live this Christian walk on our own power. Forgetting that it's through the power of God that we do anything. So in chapter 8 of Romans chapter 1, Paul is just trying to encourage these Christians Understand that they were suffering. They were suffering persecution. Because remember, in, in ancient Rome, it wasn't like Texas today. Right now, we have the blessing of living in a cultural Christian state. Well, Christianity is still smiled upon. Maybe not biblical Christianity, but at least Christianity in general. People like Jesus. People don't mind you knocking on their doors for the most part. People don't mind you bringing up who Jesus is and say, praise God and bless you and thank you for coming to my door and I hope your church does. Well, that's the that's the theme we get now, but in the Roman church, it wasn't that. I think they were slandered by the Roman culture because they, the Romans thought they were cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. Well, how do they think that? Well, think of it. You know, Jesus, you know, take part of it. This is my flesh. This is my blood. So they think they're eating and drinking some dude? Like, this is, what is wrong with these people? They say, no, 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 no. Let me explain the Lord's Supper and the symbolism behind it and the memorial meal. No, the culture hated Christians. And so they're suffering, so Paul is trying to encourage them. They're suffering, and they're being tempted to sin, and say, no, 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 find hope, find encouragement. You are no longer of the flesh, you're now of the spirit, you're no longer debtors to the flesh. You don't have to give in to sin, but why? Because you have the spirit of God in you. So he gives two foundations to, for the Christian to hope on. The first foundation is the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that for soon, that as we suffer with Christ, there's going to be a glorified state that we get to be with in Christ. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He lived the life. He died the death. He rose from the grave. He ascended on high, and he's going to return. And so on the work of Christ, Paul's saying, you need to have hope. Have hope in your suffering right now. But the second hope is found in verse 26, is that in the Holy Spirit. We find hope in the finished work of Christ, and now we find hope in the active work of the Holy Spirit. Saying, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our suffering, when we want to give up. When we're tired of mourning, when we're tired of uh, discipling, when we're tired of suffering, being maligned and ridiculed. He's saying, no, the Spirit will help you in your weakness. Because the Spirit's going to guide you towards God's will. And this is where we land on with our text. As we study it together, what you need to realize, what we need to do, is that we need to live unwaveringly, unwaveringly for Christ. With confidence, so confident that we will not waver in, in one bit. How do we do that? Because we remember God is working, actively working, in our lives as Christians toward his wondrously good end. That is what Paul is going to explain to you and I right now as we see the certainty of God's work fulfilled. Unlike me on Thursday is the uncertainty of the work to be done with that second turkey that disobeyed me. I was kicked into a frenzy. But now we don't need to be in a frenzy because we have a certain work that is going to be done. So let's read together verse 28 once more. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, what a wonderful text. What an encouraging text that, that is, should embolden us and empower us to leave this room encouraged to live faithfully for Christ. But there's a few things that we need to dive in a little deeper. Paul's saying, and we know. 
He's saying, Roman churches, you know this. I know this. We know this. We know this fact to be true. I don't need to give you another dissertation. I don't need to give you Romans, uh, the book of Romans part two, because you know this information already. What is the information that they know? That all things work together for good for the who? For those who love God. Now, Paul's making a clarification and a distinction. The clarification is for, for those who love God, a genuine love for God. It's not the ones that profess to love God and hate their brother. The Bible is abundantly clear. If you profess to love God and hate your brother, meaning other people, especially Christians, First John makes it abundantly clear, you are not a Christian. Because a Christian's love, not love perfectly, but they love because God has first loved them. So he's making a distinction saying, hey, or a clarification, excuse me, that for those who genuinely love God, who are known by God, and who are loved by God, and they love God in return, this is just what's going to happen. But he's making an exclusive distinction. And here's the truth. Not every human being is a child of God. No, we're all created in his image. The only people that are children of God are those who have repented and trusted in Christ, who have been justified, who have been redeemed by God. Those are the children of God. Those who actually love God. So he's saying only Christians, and he's making this exclusive claim not to just punt the non-Christian out of the room. He's saying this claim to encourage the Christian, saying, hey, you know this. You love God. I love God. And those who love God, all things, everything, in totality, every fiber, every molecule is working together for good. Now, we'll define good in verse 29. But the point that Paul's laying here is saying, hey, God is actively working every atom in this universe towards good. But again, is this to exalt us or to exalt God? Well, it's obviously the latter. Finishing verse 30, 28. For those who are called, again, the Christians who are called according to his purpose, not our purpose and what we think is right, according to his purpose and his purpose alone. Paul is just giving this reminder. Remember, we know. He's giving this reminder to the church, to the Roman churches, that since they are children of God, since they love God, that they can actually hope in their suffering, knowing that their suffering is not a loss, that their suffering is not wasted, that God is using it and using it for good. And because of that, he's trying to say, hey, don't forget, God isn't inactive. This is a powerful God. This God is so powerful that he submits evil to even to his will. He takes a fallen world that is rebellious against him, and he is so powerful and strong. We are so weak, we cannot even influence anything, but he can mold even a fallen world towards his glorious plan. And he's saying, look how powerful God is, but look how active God is. As you're actively in your suffering, look Christian saying God is active at hand, so find comfort, not just in his power, but find comfort in his active movement. We can see the Holy Spirit actively working in our lives, the lives of believers, and even in the world. Because God is shaping up nations, raising up leaders, taking down leaders to fulfill his plan. And for the Roman Christians, they needed to find comfort. And for us Christians this morning, we too need to find that comfort. Let's write this down for point number one. Find comfort in God's agency. His agency, his active work. We're not 
deists were theists. A deist believes God is a watchmaker that made the watch and stepped back and said, I'm going to let the world do its thing. No, God is active. He's actively in your life. In the problems and the situations that you're in, he's actively there. What we need to do is figure out what he's doing so that we can be, as a book says, to be a part of it. But for some of us, comfort doesn't seem possible. Your family might be completely dysfunctional and it's painful just to even interact with them. Maybe it's, you can't find comfort because the job that you had is gone or you, you can't find one. The home that you wanted, you, you can't achieve or it's damaged or lo and behold, something you lost a loved one. Where the Bible makes this abundantly clear, Paul's doing it and the whole Bible makes this clear that you can find comfort even in the midst of tragedy. I want us to turn to Lamentations chapter 3. So turn to your Bibles to the left. And so let's hear some pages turn, some tablets tap, some keyboards typing away as we pull up Lamentations chapter 3. If you go towards the middle of your Bibles, you'll find Isaiah. You go into the right, you'll find Jeremiah. And then after Jeremiah, you'll find Lamentations. And Lamentations is the same author of Jeremiah. But these words are very comforting words, encouraging words. You might have these words in your home, maybe in your living room or your bedroom or your kitchen. And if you don't, Hobby Lobby sells this verse in their store. <laughs> but what, is, what does Jeremiah have to say? Lamentations chapter 3. But I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because I'm remembering some truth. I'm remembering a fact, and this is how I can have hope. That the situation that I'm in, I have hope in it, despite what's going on. Why? Because I'm remembering this truth. What is this truth? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Isn't that amazing? His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. That song that we sing, his mercies are, are more. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I mean, this is wonderful. I want to. I feel like I'm on cloud nine. I want to run out those doors and live for God now. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in Him. I mean, that's like a Thanksgiving meal that is just warm and, and just filling. But you have to understand the the context to understand the power behind these words. Remember, Paul saying these words to, to the Romans that all things are working together for good, and they're suffering. Jeremiah was suffering. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you are in the water tower in green. You and your family are safe, thankfully. However, every one of us down here and everyone in New Braunfels is fighting for our lives. Yeah, no, we're being slaughtered by an invading army. You're safe, but you're watching the streets of green, the streets of New Braunfels run red with blood because of an invading army. That is what Jeremiah is seeing. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the valley. He's on a hill across the valley looking at Jerusalem Actually, you can hear the wailing and the screams as Babylon enters and is ravaging Jerusalem. They're separating mothers from their children. They're doing unspeakable acts to women. They're doing unspeakable acts to children to smash their little bodies. They're seeing the men slaughtered before their eyes. He's healing, hearing the pain, and yet he writes these words. The steadfast love never ceases. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right there is proof to you, no matter in the greatest of tragedy that you are facing, God can give you comfort. Even Jeremiah experienced that in the greatest tragedy that he witnessed and experienced. That seems a bit extreme. I don't think an invading army is going to come anytime soon. True. But death will find us all eventually. 
There was a fellow brother in Christ up north in the country named Canada. I don't know why I said it that way, but I just thought it would be fun. <laughs> His name is Tim Challies. He's a wonderful Christian blogger. And him and his wife had to find comfort in a sudden loss they faced. His parents, you know, I have a 21-year-old son. My job is, all right, how do I keep this little baby alive? And he put gates on stairs, so that kills my child. And he put things in sockets, so that kills my child. So I'm like, it's right, I'm just trying to keep my child alive right now. And then for us, you know, it's a little easier, but like, hey, don't run on the train, stop on the train tracks. Train tracks, no, stop it, stop it. Or the jumping in the streets. We're always trying to protect our kids, but we think when they're grown and they're out of our home, like, okay, they're kind of safe, all right? Sure, they can, but you know, what's going to happen? Well, Tim got a phone call saying that while his son, his engaged, his son who's engaged to his fiancee, was playing basketball with his friends at college, and they still don't know to this day why, but he dropped dead. Healthy young man. Still don't know why. And now Tim and his wife are now having to experience the loss of their child. And so what did they do? They found comfort in God. In his article, my son, my dear son, has gone to be with the Lord. He writes, Tim Challies writes, yesterday Aileen, his wife, and I cried and cried until we could cry no more. Until there are no tears left to cry. Then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. And that's us, right? We don't want to face the tragedies. We don't want to face the, uh, the obstacles. We don't want to face the hardships that we're in. But guess what? You're in them, and God can give you comfort in them because they know this. And that's what they found comfort. The comfort is that they can get through this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we do not have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians. Like a son and daughter of the father who knows what it is to lose a son. It is true. So whatever situation, remove the reason that you're trying to refuse comfort. Remove the reason that you are resisting help. Remove the reason that you're not allowing God to change your life to say, you can find comfort. You can live in the, the devastation of what you're living in, but with hope paired with it. Tim, Charlie's and his wife experienced this. Jeremiah experienced this. And so, so can we. But how do we do this? How can we find comfort? Essentially, it's learning how to trust God. It's learning how to trust God. A helpful resource by Jerry Bridges, a book called You Can Trust God. It's maybe 20, 30 pages long. He applies Philippians 4, essentially, he gives us five steps of how we can learn to trust God so we can find comfort in God. The same comfort that we can see in Romans 8. The reminder, okay, God, you, you are working all things together for good. The first thing he recommends is that you need to admit you're helpless. That's what we need to do in Romans 8. So I'm helpless. I can't do the work. You, God, are doing the work. I only have hope because of you. I am helpless without you. And the Christian knows this. The Christian understands that they are helpless because in the moment of their salvation, even if they're a child or in their 90s, they can go, no, I'm helpless before the Lord. My sin is great. I see my sin now, God. I see how indebted I am to you, God. And God, I understand that the hell that is in place for sin is where I, I, I deserve to go. 
But God, I know you offer forgiveness because you loved me so much. You did something about it. You sent your son to live in this world, to live a life that I could never live, to fulfill my life. Even though I deserved to die, I didn't. You did. Even though I deserved the entirety of the eternal wrath of God, you took it on on the cross, not just for my sins, but the sins of the world. He didn't stay dead, God. You rose from the grave. I know that I can have forgiveness of sins, that you can offer it because you are now alive. You're alive because the sins that you paid it in full, death cannot hold you back. What are the wages of sin? It's death. But death cannot hold back Christ, and the Christian knows that, and so they come helpless to the cross saying, God, forgive me. They go to the, the, to the empty tomb and say, God, forgive me. You did the work. I trust in that. I'm turning from my sin, God. I'm giving it up. I won't be perfect. I'm still not perfect. But God, change me. God, I'm committed to live for you. Change me. That is what it looks like to be helpless. And for the Christian, they constantly remember through the rest of their life, God, I'm helpless, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's the Christian walk. But I want to challenge some of you in the room. They can probably tell me the, a, a time when you were converted. But I would say maybe it's just a religious experience that happened maybe 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You had this experience where you thought you were helpless, but, but like, more like the parable, instead of the good soil, maybe a rocky, thorny soil, which the Bible makes abundantly clear that received the gospel, we're not Christians. And until the trials of the world stemmed them out, until the thorns of the world choked them out for the past 10, 15, 20 years. Christians sin. This they do. But as God changes them, they begin to sin less. They have a hard fight, but they have hope. My challenge to you is if you had a religious experience in the past, but you notice there's no real change, there's a high probability that the scripture is true, that the spirit of God is maybe not in you yet. So let that bad news sink in, but let it make you drive to the good news. The good news is that today can be the day of salvation, that you can come helpless before the Lord and say, God, I am helpless, I need you. And this is the second step in how we can trust God, that we need to choose to seek God's help. We're helpless, and we choose to seek God's help. And that's what happened in the conversion. God finally opens our eyes. He draws us, and God, I need you. I don't need me. I need you. And for the Christian walk, we constantly do that. We say, God, I need your help. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. My wisdom was, you know, did not work out very well. I need you. And the third thing we can do, applying the book, you can trust God, is that we need to pray for grace, pray for God's help to trust God. It's hard. It's difficult. You have difficult, you have very real and difficult family situations. You have real difficult job situations, health situations. But we need to turn and pray, God, help me to trust you. Fourthly, we need to immerse ourselves in Scripture. Not just reading it every day as a checklist on our, on our daily habit that we do, just to say, I completed the date, you know, DBR, the daily Bible reading, so my, my life group leader doesn't have to pester me, or Pastor Hayden and Pastor Evan don't have to pester me. No, it's, I want to live in this word. I want to know this word. So not me to conform my thoughts onto these, to these pages, instead for these words, God's words, to conform my, my mind the way that I think, my heart, my desires, to change my actions, to change my path according to his will. I want God to conform me, to press down upon me, to mold me to be more like him. We need to be immersing ourselves in scripture. 
And then finally, we need to choose to act on what is true about God and not how we feel. I know the doctrine of predestination, which we'll touch on in just a moment, really gets, gets to people. Like, how do I know I'm, I'm one of the elect? I'm like, you're never going to know until you know. And how do you know is when God saves you. Because remember, it's not your job to save yourself. It's God's. He's going to do the work. And what you need to know is this truth. God offers forgiveness to you right now. You need to humble yourself and take it. And for the rest of your Christian walk, we need to make sure we're choosing to act on what is true about God and not how we feel. That's what Jeremiah did. He remembered in the moments as he's witnessing and hearing the carnage of Babylon ravaging Jerusalem, he's remembering, God, this is because you're disciplining us. Babylon's not defeating you, God. You're using Babylon to defeat us because of our sin. But God, you promise restoration. And I trust that you will restore us back into this land. And furthermore, God, you promised to avenge your people. And he did. God avenged Jerusalem and Israel so thoroughly that Babylon doesn't even exist anymore. Not as a nation or a city. All you see is little ruins and the dust and sand in the modern country of Iraq. So we can see what God has done and find comfort knowing, okay, God, this is what's true. I don't feel it right now, but I want to kick my feelings to the side and say, God, I want to hold on what is true and find comfort despite the situation I'm feeling. The implications of if we actually apply this is that we can find comfort that's beyond explanation. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, particularly verse 7, that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds, but it's beyond understanding. It's a comfort like Tim and his wife have with the loss of their son. How can you find comfort in the loss of your firstborn son? How can you have, find comfort not knowing how your son died? I can't explain it, but it's because we just trust in God, knowing his work. Knowing that he's working everything to good. But we need to make sure we understand what good even means. Even to find true comfort, we need to understand what good means. And when we understand what good means, then we can actually engage in your tangible, practical situations and circumstances that you're in. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Let's get our Bibles turning, ruffling our papers, tapping our tablets, tapping our keyboards. Back to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, comfort, to be conformed, excuse me, to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those who foreknew, this is now where we get the beginnings of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, meaning that God had a plan before time, a plan before, as he told Jeremiah, hey, before you were even born, I knew you and chose you to be my prophet. And as first, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, chapter 3, that for those who love God are known by God, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, excuse me. Nope, oh, 1 Corinthians 8, excuse me. That's why I have notes. But the Roman church is supposed to take comfort knowing that, hey, for those God foreknew is you, Christians. Find comfort in the fact that he knew before you before you were even born. And furthermore, he predestined. Predestined what? Now, the doctrine of predestination is in the word foreknew right now. This word predestined means there was a predestined plan. What is this plan? To be conformed to the image of his son. 
So what I need you to do, what I need to do myself, is to write in definition of good, and I want you to underline to be conformed to the image of his son. He's working all things together for good. Why? Because he pre-planned it. But that good is what? For you and me to be conformed, to be like Christ. Because God is perfectly good. And the more like we are like God, the more good we can be. Not for the good for our sakes, but to exalt God. We aren't conformed to his image just for our benefit, for our exaltation. No, the purpose is still God. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You got to remember the Jewish, con- I'm a thirdborn. Think I'm the firstborn son, so I still think I'm the favorite of my family. But for the firstborns in the room, it's like, well, yeah, I know I get an inheritance from my parents, but they're going to evenly distribute, distribute it. Well, in cultures, that didn't really normally work out that way. Usually the firstborn has double portion compared to the younger siblings. I mean, we see this actually in England right now. We have King, I forgot his Charles? Charles, that's right, King Charles III. I, that was a terrible name. The first two Charles didn't work out very well for England. They lost their heads, let's just say that. So King Charles, he has siblings, right? But not all his siblings have the even equal power of being king of England. Only he has the power to be king, and he gets to rule over his siblings. And now the firstborns in the room are going, man, I want to go back to England now. I want to rule over my siblings, the tyrannical thumb. No, the, the Jesus, he's the firstborn to be, to be a ruler over who? Among many brothers. We have to be called brothers of Christ. Why? Because God conforms us and saves us to be a child of God. And so God is going to save a people so Christ can rule over a people, a.k.a. Christians, a.k.a. believers. So the purpose of God working all things together for good, for us to be conformed into his son's image, is not for really, it's, it's our benefit, but it's not for our benefit, it's for God's exaltation, which in turn is our best benefit. The more God is exalted, the more beneficial it is. I'm going to just look at some of the cultures around us, the, more, the ones that are more Christ-exalting probably have a more secular benefit versus the ones that are hating God-exalting. That's more of a cultural negative benefit. So Paul's reminding the Roman churches that God has a purpose in their salvation. Their salvation was the purpose to conform them to Christ's image, to exalt Christ on them more. And since they now know that God is actively working in their lives to conform them to Christ, they know finally how to engage their present suffering. It's like, all right, now I know how they need to approach it. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. I feel emboldened. Now I'm going to face the suffering that I'm facing, knowing that there's a purpose behind it. To conform me into his son's image and also to help them be conformed to his son's image. So what we need to do today is point number two, engage your present circumstances, with God's purpose in mind. And Paul didn't say these words and never lived it out. He actually lived it out. The book of Philippians is such a joyful letter, but it's written when Paul is in prison. And for the Philippians, they were kind of devastated that Paul is in prison. They were, they were thinking, oh, oh no, like the apostle Paul, the guy who was called to reach the Gentile, he's in prison. Like this isn't God's losing. It's like the people in Jeremiah's time, God's loot, Babylon's ravaging Jerusalem, where we're losing. And Jeremiah's like, no, 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 this is God working out his plan. And Paul even says it in Philippians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses, verse 12. He's like, hey, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, my imprisonment, really has served to advance the gospel. See this not in our lens, in our purview, see this in God's purview. 
That my imprisonment has advanced the gospel. Well, how did it advance the gospel, Paul? You're in chains. You don't really get to see people. And that's not true. Because the, whole, the gospel has been known throughout the whole imperial guard. People that Paul probably wanted access to going, man, it'd be really nice to be able to reach the police officers of the Roman era. Well, God had a plan to arrest him, and now guess what? He's chained to a police officer going, hey, well, we're chained here. You want to have a conversation? I want to talk about Jesus. Hit me all you want, officer, but I'm going to tell you all about Jesus, and you're going to like it. And they keep rotating and rotating, and more and more people get to hear about the gospel and respond to the gospel and go into their homes, their Roman homes that Paul had no access to, and reach their families for Christ. See what God's doing? And not only the, the prison guards, but even the prisoners in verse 13, the end of verse 13, and to all the rest that, are, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Like everyone in the, the, the inmates with me are hearing about God. So Philippians, don't be discouraged. Instead, engage your circumstances the way I'm engaging my circumstances. Say, I'm exalting Christ. I'm being conformed to Christ's image. I'm going to help reach them so that they can be conformed to Christ's image. But not only that, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the brothers outside the jail that know what God is doing inside here, which God is doing with the gospel through me, to conform me to his image, to proclaim his image, to see other people saved and conformed to Christ's image, they're like, you know what? I can face those family dinners. Paul's in prison. I can face the family dinner for Christ. I can go into work and I can exalt Christ in my work. I can exalt Christ to my, you know, my neighbor who despises Christ. I can exalt him. I don't have to fear because Paul is doing it. I can engage my present circumstances to exalt Christ. And so for us, hopefully we won't be imprisoned for our faith. But in every little aspect of our lives, we have to ask the question, okay, God, how are you changing me to be like your son? And how can I help others to do the same? As a new parent of a 20-month-year-old son, I'm learning the doctrine of total depravity. He might be adorable, but he, boy, is he disobedient. And I love my son. But when he hit my wife out of anger, I swiftly came to action, picked up my son. Even though he was crying and remorseful for what he did, I still disciplined him. Pulled him to a private room, got his thigh, smacked it a couple times, made him cry some more, comforted him and brought him back. Now, I can see him hitting my wife. Well, I'm going to teach this little young guy a lesson. You don't hit my wife. Who do you think you are, a little 20-month-year-old adorable son? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give him a peace of my mind. I'm going to show who's, I'm in charge of this house, Theodore. Or I need to approach it in the way that God wants me to approach it. I need to engage in that current circumstance to be conformed to Christ's image, but also to teach my son who Christ is in hopes that he's conformed in his image. For example, in, just short, in a short amount of time, when he hit my wife out of anger, I picked him up, not out of anger, in a controlled manner, went into the room privately, I spoke to him, knowing that he can't really understand, but he kind of under, understands, it's kind of weird, parents, you kind of get it, like, I know you understand me, this is weird. I smacked him a couple times on his thigh, made him cry some more, I comforted him, and brought him back. What, did, what happened? Was it me just disciplining him because I know that I need to do that because that's what the book of Proverbs says? No. 
what happened was I was trying to engage with my son and say, I need to teach you not something about, about my mind. I need to teach you about who God is. And in a short few moments, when I engaged with my son, my son learned this. He learned about the justice of God. He learned about how God sees sin. He learned that God is swift to act. He learned that about God's authority through his parents. He learned about God's complete and perfect justice, not one that goes overboard. He, God is not, he learned about God's self-control, God's slowness to anger, God's steadfast love, but God's love through discipline. God, he, Theodore learned about God's mercy and forgiveness. God, he, Theodore learned about God's clarity on his rules. Theodore knows not to hit my wife or to hit us. He knows this. He disobeyed, but he knows that God has discipline, but then knows that God has a plan of restoration. I didn't leave him sitting in his discipline. Instead, I took the time to let him know I loved him and restore him back into a right relationship, not just with me, but with my wife. In just a small moment, my son learned a ton of theology that were written in libraries at seminaries. And that's what we get to do as we engage in the current circumstances that you are in. We have to ask the question, God, what are you changing in me? How can I display your glory? And how do I properly represent you so people know who you are? So either one, if they're not a Christian, can know the gospel and rightly respond to it because they see me proclaim, hear me proclaim it and live in a manner worthy of it, but also to encourage the other believers to remember who God is and how to follow him. So how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are engaging our present circumstances with God's purpose in mind? Well, first off, we just got to remember that God is working all things for the good and the good is being sanctified in Christ. So here's four quick steps. One, asking God what you need to do. It's not relying on what I think is due. In that moment when I saw my son hit my wife, was I upset? Yes. But I had to remember, okay, God, what do you need to do? What does your word say? All right, I need to do this quickly. I need to do this, you know, with as much gentleness and, and self-controlled as possible. I need to teach my son who you are. So help me to do this rightly. So what do I do? I have to remember God's word. And that's why we have to be immersed in this we have to be living in this. We can't be neglecting this. We can't, be just, we can't neglect it. Sometimes we can neglect it by reading every day. No, we need to be immersed in it every day. Just reading every day, just for the sake of reading, is not going to impact you at all. Being immersed every day is to say, God, I need you to change me. Help me understand this so that you can conform me to your son's image. So it's asking God what you need to do. And then the second, second step is do it. Simple as that, do it. Thirdly, it's trusting God with the results. I know for some of you, unfortunately, and this is a real thing, some things you need to do, it's involving a lot of family, people that you love. The people, though, that has a lot of potential for backlash, a lot of potential for hard words, hurtful words, hurtful actions, the potential of being excluded from family. But you know what you need to do you know God's word. You need to honor your parents. You need to love them. You need to preach the gospel to them. You need to display the gospel to them. You need to follow what God has to say despite what they say and do so out of love and gentleness and patience. But trust in God with the results. It might work out that God allows them to repent on the spot. When your enemy is thirsty, you give them something to drink. Why? To, have pour, to pour hot coals on their heads so they, they would just be angry of their sin and repent. That's the hope. Or still trusting God that, okay, God, they didn't do it today, but hope is tomorrow. My hope is the next day. 
I'm going to keep doing it and trusting in your plan and timing. I'm going to trust you with the results. And step number four is repeat steps one through three. Over and over and over. Now, that might seem daunting, but remember, it's daunting to the non-Christian. Because the non-Christian is trying to do something impossible. is to persevere in a life that they have no strength to persevere in. For the Christian, this is not daunting. Because why? Because we have God in us. When we repent and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit then indwells in us. What is the implication of that? That the most powerful being in existence is inside of the believer. And that we can obey him. We can. Why? Because God is in us. He's doing the work in us. We just have to trust God and do it. And trust God with his plan. Trust God with his results. I'm not trying to manipulate as much as we can. God, I know what I need to do. I need to reconcile with this friend. They might slander me back, but God, I'm going to do it anyway because this is what you want me to do. And I know you'll give me the strength to do it and help me to exalt you in the process. We can repeat steps one through three, asking God what to do and doing it and trusting God the results over and over and over. And even when we fail, we can still turn to the grace of God's finished work and say, God, you are doing the, you've done the work and you're doing the work in me so I can trust you to finish all the way until you call me. So despite if you lose your job or you get injured or your kids get injured, you have an impending meeting with a tough employee or employer. You have a future family dinner coming up on Christmas. Even though your finances are stretched beyond imagination, your car breaks down, your home is broken and damaged, you're insulted, or you did the insulting, you've sinned or you were sinned against, you can engage faithfully if you ask God what to do and faithfully doing it, trusting that God will give you the strength to do it and trusting with his results because he's going to exalt himself perfectly. So as we engage in our present circumstances, it will embolden us to be faithful to the end, to persevere. Not the thing that we're doing, not our work, but because we're relying on the work of God, the finished work of Christ, the active work in the Holy Spirit, and the, the work to be fulfilled. Turn back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 with me as we wrap up this morning. Paul drops some theology on the Roman churches, but with a distinct purpose. He says, and those whom he predestined, not just predestined to save, but as the context in verse 20, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he also called. That calling, you can, it's illustrated perfectly in John chapter 11, when Jesus calls out Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus had no choice to stay dead. He said, no, God, I'm going to stay here dead. Jesus called him. He's like, yep. Yep, I'm coming out, God. I'm kind of wrapped up like a mummy right now, but I'll be there in a moment. Lazarus had no choice when God called. So when God called, it was a perfect calling. And with those he called, he also justified. Justified means he paid the legal debt in our place, meaning that, he is, that we now have a right covenant relationship with God because God is the one who justifies us. And those he justified, he also glorified. The funny part is that this is all in the past tense, but glorifying is in the future. I mean, Paul even mentions that earlier, earlier in Romans chapter 8. Is that this glorifying work is why is it, we're going to suffer with Christ in, in verse 17, but we'll also be glorified with him. This is a glorification to come. How is it past tense? 
How, do I, how can I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us? Like the glorification of the perfect, our, the redemptions of our bodies, that we will be in a perfect eternal state with a perfect eternal God. How, how is that in the past tense in verse 30? Where God's saying, it might be in the future, but it, it is as good as done. Just take a, an illustration. Another pastor mentioned is the sport of baseball. The batter hits the ball out of the, out of the park. It's a home run. It's a guaranteed run or guaranteed point for his team. But when is that run or that point applied? Is it when the ball hit, is over the fence or is it applied when he actually hits home plate? Well, it's only applied when he hits home plate. You watch a game. It won't change until he runs around the bases and has his foot or hand or head if he really wants to touch home plate. So right now, God has hit the ball out of the park. The payment of sin is done. But God is past third base. He is on the home stretch, and that's what we're waiting for. We're anticipating God to finish the job and then for the application of our glory to be actually applied. And so the glory that Paul is saying is that it's in the past because it is as good as done. Find confidence in this. Let this truth fortify you that even though you're suffering now, even though it looks like you're losing now, God has already won. Even though he's running through the valley of the shadow of death, that defense, remember the point of baseball, they catch the ball and they're supposed to tag him out. He can run through it no matter how he wants to run through it. He can do cartwheels, he can moonwalk, he can bear crawl. He can army crawl, he can like, t- you know, call, make a phone call at first base and stop for a bit, and no one can do anything. Why? Because the work has been done. And so God is now on the home stretch, and that's what we're waiting for. And so even though you feel like you're losing right now, even though it feels like the suffering that you're experiencing, the obstacles are too great, just know that God's already won. The work is done. If you are a Christian, you will one day be glorified. It is good as done. Nothing can separate you. That's what he finishes off in chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. See, nothing can separate us from the work of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So find confident, Christian, that your faith be fortified because of what I have done and what I'm going to do. And this is our final point this morning. Point number three, fortify your faith, strengthen your faith with God's guaranteed work. And the reason why fortify is because we're at war. We are fighting a spiritual battle that we have to put on the armor of God. And so we need to fortify our faith against what? The schemes of the devil. Who is going to attack your faith? It's going to happen. But the good news is that Christ has already won. So we can stand strong with confidence, no matter how big and scary the enemy's army is, we can stand strong knowing that God has already won. And what does this fortified faith look like? It looks like when Hananiah, uh, sorry, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were faithful to God despite the most powerful man in the world saying, worship me, they looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, no. So I'll give you a chance. Here's a big old fiery furnace. Worship me. Here's another chance. They're like, no. Why? Because their faith was fortified, knowing that God's going to deliver us. But even if we die in these flames, God's going to deliver us. Because God's going to redeem us. God's going to save us. You have nothing, Nebuchadnezzar. You can just kill the flesh. But hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to fear the one who can kill your flesh and cast you into hell. So they said no. Fortified faith looks like strong faith because we know the truth. 
It's unwavering faith. But thankfully, we don't have any fiery furnaces in our lives, literal furnaces. We might have some metaphorical, allegorical furnaces in our lives that are real and tangible. But what can this look like today? Well, there's a couple of friends of mine. We had dinner with them recently, and I was just chuckling. because They talked about the, how they uh, were going to go visit some family. And I know their family situation, and I know their family situation both on his side and her side can be fun, more or less. It can be joyful, but also there's a high probability of, or not a high probability, but there's a potential of some mean words being said, some mean actions, some cold shoulders, some eye rolls, slanderous words potentially. Why aren't you going to baptize your baby in the Roman Catholic Church? It's like, well, we don't believe that, mom and dad. Doesn't matter what you say, we're going to be faithful to God. Don't you know you're wrong? No, this is what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? No, this is what the Bible says. Like, they know this potential to come. But here they were at dinner going, we're looking forward to it. To smiles. I'm like, who are these people? With smiles. Why? Because their faith has been fortified of the truth that they're not relying on their work to deal with their family. They're working on the, they're relying on the work of God. Knowing that God can save them, no matter how far their family is from God, God can save them. Not only that, God can redeem them. And they just know, hey, we're going to be faithful vessels. It's an opportunity to reach them for the gospel. I'm like, you know it's going to be a fun little frenzy for Christmas dinner, but okay. You do you. But I'm so proud of them because their faith has been fortified, and so they can sing with joy saying, yeah, we're visiting some family. When sometimes our prayer requests are like, oh, please pray for me, my family's coming over, and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> now we can have strength saying, no, I look forward to this. Because I get to be, I can display who God is to my family. But how do we do this? Well, we, one, learn how to wait for the Lord. You can write down, we don't have the time to turn to it, but write down Isaiah chapter 40, verses 20, 27 to 31. Isaiah 40, 27 to 31. We know 30 to 31, but a lot of us don't know verses 27. Isaiah is telling Israel, who has this impending judgment to come, saying, why are you saying, Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right... Uh, my right is disregarded by my God. Essentially, like Israel saying, God doesn't remember his promises. I, God feels far from me. I don't feel him. Uh, I just don't believe God. I just don't feel it. And he's like, Isaiah's like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you people, as R.C. Sproul once said? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, even the most strong 20, 30-year-old man, shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, you should underline that word, wait, or write it down. Wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They're the ones that can persevere. They're the ones that can grit their teeth and say, take it on, family. Take it on, Satan, because I have God with me. I have the armor of God on me. I can face you with confidence. Those who wait for the Lord. But what does the word wait mean? To quote this definition from Josh. Weidman, from his book, The End of Anxiety, he said, waiting on, the, waiting on God is exercising confidence in his perfect timing. Waiting on God is exercising confidence in his perfect timing. I know our 
It's him and his wife and the loss of their son. They know that they're grieving. They would love it to be over. But they're waiting patiently, knowing that God's perfect timing, their sorrow will eventually end. For my friends, they know that God's perfect timing, God will eventually reveal his glorious plan to, his, to their families. Either they will bow the knee to Christ, either in joy or sorrow, but eventually they know that God is going to exalt himself to their family. And for us, we need to know that we need to wait. And waiting isn't just sitting in our hands, twiddling our thumbs. Like that, if you have seen the movie Incredibles, that little boy who's waiting for Mr. Incredible to lift the car, he's like, well, what are you waiting for? He's like, well, something incredible, I guess. That's not waiting. Waiting is actively living out your Christian walk, doing what you know you're supposed to be doing because you studied and immersed in God's word, trusting to get God to give you strength, doing it regardless of the results. Knowing and trusting in God's perfect timing to exalt himself. So when the moment gets at its most tense in your situation, when the moment gets at its most strained, at your most heated, when you want to smash things or walk away, when we're immersed in God's word, dwelling in it, God will help you not only to recall his word, he'll also give you the strength to react according to his will over and over and over again. We can find comfort over and over again. We can engage correctly over and over again because our faith has been fortified by us trusting in God's redemptive work. A friend of mine who's a chiropractor back in California, if you ever have the pleasure of meeting him, you'll understand this is probably the most joyful person you'll ever meet, most joyful in the Lord, despite his body you know, failing. Why? He's just, he's just getting old. Even though he almost lost the vision of both of his eyes and actually became blind in one of his eyes, it didn't hinder his joy. He still finds joy as he shares to others what God is, has done in his life as he learns. He still finds joy in what God has shown him and loves to write poetry to God about what God has done. He faithfully attends his church. He's faithfully connected to his church. And he faithfully serves his church. But he does all three of those with absolute joy. Even though he finds joy in making me in pain as he pokes and prods and corrects my body, he finds even more greater pleasure as he shares to others what God has done in his life. Why? Because he remembers God is working in his life to conform him into Christ's image, and that is his best good. And that's why he lives for Christ unwaveringly. He knows God's active work in his life and in the life of others, even in this world, so he finds comfort. He knows God's purpose in his life is, again, to conform into Christ's image. And so that's why he engages every circumstance in his life, thinking, oh, God, can I glorify you? He remembers God's guaranteed work. And so his faith is fortified despite losing the vision in one eye. And his body is continually failing, knowing that one day he's going to have a perfect body with perfect vision and a perfect presence, in the perfect presence of Christ, our King. So church, I pray that this would be an encouragement for you to walk out these doors to whatever circumstance that you're in, to walk into it confidently, knowing that God is actively with you and working to glorify himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. But more importantly, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for your word that encourages us, emboldens us, helps us to live out this life according to your wonderful plan. God, for those God, who have yet to be helpless before you, who have yet to be saved, God, I pray that today 
Lord, that they would humble themselves, acknowledge their helplessness, and trust in you and turn to you for their salvation, to turn from their sins and rely on your righteousness to cover their sins and know that, that you will finish the work that you've begun in them to save them and to bring you, them into your wonderful presence. So God, help us, the rest of us who are already Christians, to remember that truth, that the situations that are in our lives are being used by you to conform us into your image and to help others be conformed into your image as well. So God, help us to have a fortified faith and to walk out of here zealous and ready to glorify you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.